Joel. Joel. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided, you'll find that on page five, or excuse me, 480 and 481. 480 is the beginning of the book of Joel. If you didn't get a handout yet, Brother Doug has some that he can um, get to you. If you want to just flag him down. I'm going to read just the first few verses, the kind of introduction to the book of Joel. We're going to make our way very quickly through it. We're going to cover the entire book this morning. And uh, so we'll hit highlights all along the way. I would encourage you uh, later in the week to spend time actually reading through the entirety of the book of Joel. It's very brief. It's only three chapters. You can easily read it in one sitting. I'm just going to read this, this introduction, verses 1 through 3 again of the book of Joel, and then we'll ask for God's help. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Father, use your word in these moments that we have together. We pray that you would take the timeless truths of the prophet, uh, the words that you spoke through your messenger, and apply them to our hearts in our day. In Christ's name, amen. Certain days in your life dramatically change all of your life. Can you think back to those key handful of days, maybe a day or two or three or four, that that really changed the trajectory of your life? Maybe you identify in your mind some some day that was expected, that was planned for, that that you looked forward to a long time and you you look back on with, with, with recollection. Maybe it was unannounced. It was unplanned. That moment that struck, that you didn't expect, that you didn't know was going to happen. Maybe when you think of a day that changed your life, you think of a bitter day, a sad day, a death, a funeral, a bankruptcy, a storm. Other days that we remember as as monumental are, are sweet to our recollection. Weddings. Celebrations, business successes. Many days are bittersweet. You know, they have that mix of of joyous aspects, yet at the same time, a bit of a sting as well. So it is with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is to human history like like that individual 24-hour period might be in our lifetime. The day of the Lord is that time period which all of history changes when God is shown clearly and strongly. The day of the Lord is the main theme of the prophet Joel. And it's a good place for us to start because this theme comes up again and again. So if you understand well 
the motif of the day of the Lord, which is spoken of perhaps most strongly um, by, by the prophet Joel. The only possible exception would be Zephaniah, who speaks a lot about the day of the Lord, but all of the prophets touch on it. And so if you understand that, it is going to give you kind of a, a key that is going to unlock much of the study of the prophets. So we're looking now, you have open in your laps your copy of the scriptures to the book of Joel, named of course for the prophet who spoke these words. His main theme is the day of the Lord. The name Joel can be divided in half. Joe, which, which is a, a abbreviation of Yahweh or, or Jehovah, as, as we might say. Uh, the Lord, uh, if you're using an old King James, the Lord in all, all caps would be this name. And L, and we see L is followed by a number of um, titles of God, um, kind of hyphenated titles of God. Uh, El Shaddai is probably the most recognized one. So literally, the, the word Joel, the name Joel, means Yahweh, Jehovah, is God. Now, we really don't know much else about Joel. We know his father, right? We read verse 1, the son of Pethuel. But we don't know much else about him. Uh, he makes numerous references to Zion. We see this in the beginning of chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2. And then again, down later in verse 15 of chapter 2, or, uh, verse 23, chapter 3, verse 17. He, he talks a lot about uh, Jerusalem and, and Judea. And so we know that he was a, a prophet that ministered to Judah, the, the southern kingdom. If, if you did not get one of these handouts, um, there are some of these on the table in the back. And you can pick up one of those. This is a timeline that, that shows you the correspondence between the, the kings that were ruling in the uh, respective halves of the kingdom. And um, you'll remember that by this point, the, the kingdom is divided. Northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah. If you have a hard time remembering which is which, just remember the good guys were the south. Some of you will catch that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, right? So it was a mixed bag in Judah, in the southern kingdom. There were some good kings and some bad kings, and we've actually color-coordinated them according to their reign. And in the north, um, there were, in totality, there were evil kings. And so we've got the prophets laid out there uh, and which uh, kingdom they were ministering to. Joel, of course, a prophet to the southern kingdom, uh, was preaching, probably even lived in the area of Jerusalem. Now, You'll notice if you read through and you're, and you're paying careful attention to the temple that you'll see Joel mentions the temple a lot. So uh, let's start with his first mention, chapter 1, verse 9. The grain offerings and the drink offerings have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. Uh, when you go over to chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it begins to center on the temple return to the Lord uh, he is gracious, and, and how does he say to go about doing that? Um, gather, verse 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies. Verse 17, let the priests who minister to the Lord 
so he makes these frequent references to the temple, to what is going on in the temple, the sacrificial system. And so some, some look at that and they conclude, well, perhaps he was a, a priest. Uh, perhaps he was actually involved in the, the temple worship. I don't know that the case for that is solid enough to make that assumption, but clearly uh, the, the temple activity is near and dear to the prophet Joel. I don't think that that necessarily means, as some would say, that he was part of the Levitical priesthood. Uh, he also is very familiar with agriculture, with pastoral life, um, and so uh, that actually suggests perhaps that he was not uh, a Levi. He was not part of the, the clergy, if you will. Uh, extra-biblical literature, and, you know, this is not recorded for us in Scripture, but extra-biblical literature tells us that he was from the tribe of Reuben, actually, um, from the town of Beth Haram, uh, located north of the Dead Sea. Uh, Joel could have been originally from there and then ministering at the time in, in Jerusalem. Again, these are all kind of suppositions uh, extracted from the text and from, from corresponding uh, historical accounts. I have on your timeline placed Joel quite early. Now, don't let it trouble you if you read a commentator or perhaps the notes in your study Bible uh, put a different date on Joel. We, we don't know, and there's, some, there's, there's no absence of discussion amongst commentators and Bible scholars on exactly when Joel ran, uh, when he ministered. I'm giving you an early date. There are some early dates. There are some late dates that are proposed. I lean towards the view that Joel ministered to Judah during the reign of Joash and uh, 853 through 796, uh, making him one of the earliest prophets. And so that's why we're starting with, with Joel, just because of that uh, assumption uh, that he was one of the earliest prophets. Be that as it may, we know that he ministered to, to the southern kingdom at a crucial time in their history. His prophecy was warranted, it was needed, it was important. And so as he preached, he, he brought home this theme, the day of the Lord, again, perhaps more so than any other of the prophets, save perhaps Zephaniah. So it's important for us to just pause for a moment before we kind of take an overview of the book of Joel to talk about this, this concept, this motif of the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? And this is an important concept, particularly for studying the Old Testament prophets. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is used eight times in the um, Old Testament, excuse me, uh, used by eight Old Testament writers, it's used 19 different places. Eight writers use it in 19 different places. So uh, here again in our text, Joel chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning. Now, wh- how did he introduce that? Go back just to verse 1, the last phrase, the day of the Lord is coming. This is his main theme. Back up just a little bit further to the beginning of chapter 2, the beginning of verse 1. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, what were trumpets used for in that day? That was kind of like, did you, um, did you grow up in a town where they had uh, tornado sirens? 
Maybe you're from the Midwest and you remember those sirens. And, and uh, when I was really young, we lived in Indiana. And I remember at noon on Friday, that's when they tested the tornado sirens, right? That's before they had text alerts and all that jazz, right? And then people weren't on social media. And, and, but they, they, they had to get the word out. So they would, they would do what? They would, they would sound the siren. Well, in those days, they used a trumpet for that same purpose. Blow the trumpet. Why? Because they're really loud. I played the trumpet growing up, and uh, man, the, the, the flutes hated sitting in front of us, right? Because we're playing right into the back of their head. And there's only two volumes for, especially if you're an amateur trumpet player, like wide open and rest. Like there's no in between. A trumpet is a really loud instrument, and so when they wanted to warn the city of impending danger, they would blow the trumpet. And so the prophet uses that analogy, the beginning of chapter 2, blow the trumpet, give a warning, the day of the Lord is at hand. Now the term day, as the prophets use it, is not a a 24-hour period. It's much like we would use the term back in the day, right? We're not thinking of sunrise to sunset, we're saying back at a a certain period of time, or or sometimes we'll speak of days gone by. Again, we're not thinking of that that 24-hour period. We're thinking of a a past time. It's something like we would say in times gone by. Well, that's what the prophets are referring to. It is a period of time that God's character is revealed in an unusual or definitive way. Some of you are scribbling that down, so I'm going to say it again. The day of the Lord is a period of time that God's character is revealed in an unusual and definitive way. God's character is is revealed, it is seen, it is shown, it is displayed, but not as it's displayed in everyday life. It is when God intervenes in the course of human history. He is seen as mighty and powerful and holy. Now, there are two sides to this day of the Lord. The revelation of the day of the Lord brings, on the one hand, terror and fear to his enemies. On the other hand, it brings rejoicing to his people. You see, the day of the Lord, and as you read through the Scripture, you may be confused. Well, what is the day of the Lord? Is it a, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Is it a, is it a thing of blessing or is it a, a thing which we ought to fear? And the answer is yes. Yes. The day of the Lord is both a cause for fear, for trembling, but it is also a time of rich blessing. So there are kind of two sides to the day of the Lord And so there are times when the primary emphasis, and I've given you kind of a list, and I'm not going to spend a long time here, but but perhaps in your own Bible study you can examine some of these passages both in Joel and in other places. There are times when the primary emphasis is on the terrible side of the day of the Lord, on God's righteous wrath, on on His devastating power in judgment. In the book of Joel, six times it is described as a day of doom. Four times in the prophet Joel, it is described as a day of vengeance. It is demonstrated, notice in Joel 2, 
um, the beginning verses 1 through 11, it's, it's a shaking of the earth and earthquakes. And, and uh, verse 6, the faces are drained like color. They, uh, drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Verse 10, the earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars diminish their brightness. This is a time of great cataclysm. Ezekiel tells us of violent weather. Joel and Zephaniah both speak of of clouds and deep darkness as as well as this, this upheaval of the of the the known world, verse 30 of chapter 2 of Joel, I will show wonders in the heavens and earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It is a time to be feared because it is God's final verdict on His enemies. Now, this is the aspect of God's character that modern Westerners do not wish to dwell on. It it is frowned on. It is not thought well of. It, It is brushed aside to speak of the Lord as a God of vengeance, as a God of judgment. But a just God, although He is patient, although He is long-suffering, although He is loving, will one day exact revenge on His enemies. It will be done justly, it will be done rightly, and one day God will wrest the throne of the earth again and and be seated upon it. And if you are, are a person who is living in opposition to God, you're a person who is shaking your fist in rebellion against God, that day is to be feared. Make no mistake. God rules, and He will, will one day actively rule again on this earth. His enemies will be put down. And so when we think about this day of the Lord, this this day that that God is coming to make things right. We need to think about the reality that we cannot rebel from God forever. Mankind cannot throw off the rule of God without one day being brought to his vengeance being brought to bear. Okay, so that's a, that's the reality of the day of the Lord. There's another side of it we said, right? The beauty is that, that, that God is doing a work and that one day things will be made right. Do you ever look at the, the way the world is a mess, the way that wickedness seems to run rampant, and you, and you long in your heart for all of this to be made right? The day of the Lord is a point of hope. It is a point of joy, knowing that the God of the universe will once again make things right. So there's also a time of of emphasis. In particular, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament prophets focuses on the restoration of Israel, the, the redemption of His people. It's seen in terms of promise and hope. What do we see here in, in, 
In Joel 2, we see this pouring of the Spirit accompanied by the prophetic utterances, the dreams, the vision. God will once again visit His people. Chapter 2 of Joel, verse 28, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Your, your men servants and maid servants I will pour out on My Spirit in those days. God will do a work of sending His Spirit to His people. Israel will be brought back again once, once again to God. Things will be made right. The coming of the prophet Elijah is referred to by Malachi. And there will be rich physical blessings, fruitfulness, prosperity throughout the land. Joel speaks of it. The other prophets speak of it. Now, as I describe all of this, if you've been around for the last you know, month or two, something there should be a little bell going off in your head. This all sounds very familiar. This sounds like something else that has been described in terms of what? Remember our series on the covenants? This is the, the new covenant, right? Right, so so the, the positive aspect, the, the renewal aspect of the day of the Lord synchronizes with, it, it, it dovetails with, it really is one and the same with God's enacting of the new covenant. So you're beginning to see how kind of some of these themes fit together in the Old Testament. God will be in right relationship with His people. His people who, who have been chastised who have been dispersed, who have been scattered, will be, will be regathered once again, and he will pour out his rich blessing on, on them. And so even as the prophets like Joel laid out the reality that God's people were facing impending doom, he still held out the hope for them that things would be made right in the end, that his people would be restored to himself. So that's kind of a a quick overview of the day of the Lord. There's one other aspect of the day of the Lord that is going to help you in in your Bible study, all right? When we say day in our modern Western culture, we tend to think of the day beginning when? And we all know technically it begins at 1201, right? But that's not really in our kind of our cultural melu, that's not really when we think about the day beginning. We think about the day beginning when? Sunrises, right? I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you first thing in the morning means like, yeah, 10 o'clock, you know, you know, maybe eight, you know, if it's a Saturday, maybe a little later. If you're like a real go-getter, maybe like 637, like after you got your shower and you got your first cup of coffee, right? That's the beginning of the day. When does Yom Kippur begin? Sunset. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, the concept of the beginning of the day was sunset. That began the new day. You started your day with sleep. That's the way the ancient Near East mind conceived of a day. So the day began with darkness, which then yielded to a sunrise. Now that's important because how does the day of the Lord begin? It doesn't begin bright and cheerful. It begins with darkness. 
It begins with the announcement that, that God is judging. It, it, the themes are very dark. The themes are very heavy. But the day of the Lord also has within it a sunrise, a beautiful working of God. And so as you think about the day of the Lord, that's, that's the way the day of the Lord is laid out, kind of, kind of chronologically. The day of the Lord starts with his, his justice, his judgment, his putting down of his enemies and yielding to the sunrise of his glory being seen throughout the earth. So Joel structures his message around the devastation of the land that had been, that had been left behind after a locust plague. So you start out in Joel 1, right? Um, verse 4. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. You're reading this and you're going, what? Like maybe I should read some deep, dark meaning into this locust. No, it's actually quite simple. The people that Joel was speaking to had apparently just been through a devastating loss of the crops because of a locust infestation. So there's this, this plague, this blight on the land. The crops had been decimated by a swarm of locusts that was followed by another swarm of locusts that was followed by a third swarm of locusts. And so they are experiencing this near-term, this immediate plague that had come upon them. And then he goes on to compare what the Babylonian army would do in the immediate approaching day of the Lord. And he compares it to what the devastating locust had done. Now, let me also explain this to you about prophecy. And some of you, um, if you've grown up hearing much about prophecy, you've probably heard this illustration before, but I think it's a good one. Ever drive out west, like in Colorado, and you're driving in this flatland, but you look off in the distance and there's a mountain range. Those mountains, one in front of the other, look close. They look like right on top of each other. But as you drive and you get closer to them, they kind of almost seem to move apart. And then when you're right in the middle of it, you realize that there are miles and miles and miles between these mountains that when you were back there, looked like they were right on top of each other. So it is with prophecy. Right? The, prophets, the prophets are looking from a a great distance chronologically, and they are, are seeing events almost as if they're stacked on top of each other, that now that we're closer, now that we're in the mountain range, we recognize there are sometimes great distances between those mountains. And so it can be confusing to you when prophets jump around. This is what's happening. They're describing the mountain range. They're describing the broad brush strokes of what God is yet to do in the future. And sometimes those things are to us in the rearview mirror. Sometimes to us those things are in the soon immediate future. Sometimes they're yet out in the distant future. And teasing all of that out can be a tremendous amount of work and, by the way, something that Bible scholars tend to like to argue about, right? Now, I happen to think, here's, here's kind of my view on prophecy, all right? I, I do have views on prophecy. I do have views on kind of what the, what the future holds, what is in store for us. 
And I've studied the cases for those things, so it's not that I don't have a view. I do think, however, when you get into prophecy, you're a little bit on thin ice. In that, you sometimes have to do a lot of assuming, putting clues together. And so, while I have views on prophecy, and those will come out in my preaching, I try to hold them fairly loosely, all right? You'll also notice in our church doctrinal statement, there's not a lot of treatment of end times. That's not on accident. It's not because we forgot about um, eschatology, all right? (laughs) It's because the fact is good people will disagree. Like, okay, we're all looking at the mountain range. Which mountain is near and which mountain is far? How much distance is there in between them? Are we confusing something here? And so, again, I'll, I'll refer to kind of how I think Joel's prophecies, the, the Old Testament prophecies, fit into the larger picture. But keep in mind, there are certain broad things that are very clear. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord contains both blessing and cursing. And above all, the character of God is made plain from all this. So, Joel, like the other prophets, jumps ahead to a a distant future, if you want to use a big $50 word, eschatological day of the Lord. Right? So he says, okay, here's, here's what's happening in your situation. But be warned, the Babylonians are coming. The day of the Lord, God's judgment is coming. There's also a future day of the Lord. A day of the Lord that is yet even to us still future. A a day that we have perhaps seen some of the tastes of the blessings that will come, yet the day of the Lord, the, the future, the ultimate day of the Lord, if you want to refer to it that way, has yet to come. And as he makes these promises, he reminds them that what the locust eaten has eaten is going to be restored. It's possible that he's looking at this point to the return of the Israelites to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. You remember this? But he looks further beyond that. It's clear in some places that that this initial return is not, there's much more going on here. There is an eschatological restoration. There's a, a, a restoration that will happen to God's people yet in the distant future when Messiah's kingdom would be established. Their enemies would be destroyed and their nation would be permanently anchored in the promised land. So that's the day of the Lord. I've given you an outline of the book of Joel. And I don't want to belabor every aspect. Again, it is is difficult to pack an entire book and you have to to really agonize over what are you going to include, what are you not going to include. But I want you to have an overview of of the book of Joel. And I'm actually going to put um, the most of the outline up here because I want you to see, I think I have the whole, I was able to fit the whole outline, no, two slides. Because I want you to see the repeated pattern that Joel uses. So the whole book can be divided in half. It, the break of the, the midpoint of the book is after chapter 2, verse 17. All right, so that's kind of where the book divides in half, which just by coincidence, in my Bible, happens to be at a page turn, which is very convenient. Does that work out for anybody else? Does, does it? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of cool how that worked. So 
the first half, the second half of the book um, is, is, broken, is broken down for us. Lament and rejoicing. And it's not to say that those other themes don't leak into this, the other half uh, a little bit, but, but judgment in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. So he starts with this immediate situation, and then he moves to the impending situation when he's talking about lament. The day of the Lord is a cause for lament because of God's judgment. So the immediate situation is what? The locust plague. But yet that points to a future reality, the impending situation of the army, beginning in chapter 2. And under each of those, he runs a cycle. You see that? The devastating locust corresponds to the devastating army. The response that is urged is go into the temple and worship God in both cases. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, the response is to, is to the locusts. But yet in the bigger picture, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the response is run to God's temple and repent because there is an impending army. So that's the, that's the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, he focuses on what God will do to renew, to restore, to save his people. He gives them the example in the first, let's see, I guess the, the third quarter of the book, right? The chapter 2, verses 18 through 32, the restoration from the locust plague. And then when he gets into chapter 3, it's the, the eventual salvation that God will accomplish, even though this army will... Uh, we will topple them for the time being. It is not permanent annihilation. And so again, the restoration and the work of God. And then he ends the book in chapter 3, verses 9 through 21, with the renewal that God will accomplish. And how does the book end? For the Lord dwells in Zion. He just took them through thousands of years of what would happen to his people. And in the end, God rules. He, he, he sits enthroned amongst his reunited people. The Lord dwells in Zion. This theme that we hit on in respect to the new covenant also comes to the prophet Joel when he says just before that in verse 21, I will acquit them of their guilt and bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted. This is not just a reconciliation. This is not just a physical bringing together of his people. There are spiritual blessings that will be poured out. And so this is the way God is calling his people to himself. I want you to to notice that this theme of calling on God's name, it comes up again and again. We see it. Uh, I think probably the best place for us to look is chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14, Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. For the, verse 15, for the day of the Lord is at hand. God is going to judge. Repent. Submit. Be in right relationship with your God. Return to the covenant that you have forsaken. Put away your idols. Come back to God. 
because judgment is coming. And so the response that the prophet Joel calls his people to is that of repentance and worship. You say, okay, you still haven't answered my question. When is it? When is this all going to happen? All right, so I've already told you that I tried to hold my, my views on prophecy just a bit loosely. I try to hold them humbly, knowing that, that um, we, we can err on some things just because it is, it is difficult terrain. Um, we know from the prophet Joel that there's a near-term and there's an eventual aspect to the day of the Lord. So what we're really asking is not when is the day of the Lord, right? We know that an aspect of the day of the Lord was accomplished when the Babylonians uh, came in and conquered Judah. But there's really a more ultimate question that we're asking. When is the, the eschatological, the future day of the Lord? Well, it's mentioned, interestingly enough, four times in the New Testament. I think perhaps in your handout I've given you the references to those. Uh, yeah, I have. So in Acts 2, we see Joel 2 quoted. Now there's a whole discussion. I spent, I don't know, five or six hours in a grad class with that one question. <laughs> What's the relationship between Joel 2 and Acts 2? Um, Maybe you remember, maybe you don't. We preached through Acts 2 fairly recently. Uh, Peter quotes uh, Joel 2. What I believe, good men disagree, what I believe that Peter is doing is he is he's honing in on the aspect of the work of the Spirit in Joel 2. And he's holding that before the people saying, why are you surprised your own prophets spoke about the work of the Holy Spirit that would be accomplished in the end. I don't, I don't take the position that uh, Joel 2 is fulfilled, or at least fulfilled in its entirety in Acts 2. I think Peter is citing it as evidence for the broader point that he's making. Nonetheless, that's one of the references uh, that, that, takes, that, that, that we see the day of the Lord appearing, and it parallels directly with our text this morning. We see it in both of the Thessalonian epistles, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which focus on prophecy uh, for, towards that future hope that the Thessalonian believers could have because God is, is doing a work. Christ will return. And listen, my friend, whatever you think that looks like, whatever your little timeline in the back of the Bible looks like, you cannot escape from the reality that the Scripture teaches God's going to return. Christ is going to make things right. And then 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, I think, is a good one for us to consider, which we will look at in just a minute as we think about what our response is to all of this. But we know that the day of the Lord begins with darkness with difficulty, which fits pretty well with the overlay of, of the tribulation, if that's something that you're familiar with. Um, that seven years of intense judgment from God on the earth and culminates in the millennium, that thousand-year reign of Christ. And so, simply put, the day of the Lord is end times events. 
God is doing a work, even now. And one day He will be seen in His glory. It will start with judgment, and then the sunrise will come. And God's glory will be seen in the universe. He will rule and reign actively once again. So what do we do about all that? What, how do we think about all that? Well, it's interesting that, that Peter gives us a very clear answer to that. First of all, he says, The day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night. You don't schedule those. You don't know when that's going to happen. You're like, okay, I mean, it's not like home alone, right? You know, you know the bad guys are coming. You got, you know, till 7 o'clock. You prepare. It doesn't work that way, right? If a thief is coming, he doesn't announce himself. That's, that's the analogy that Peter's making. He's saying, this day is going to come, and we don't know when it's going to happen. He does now make reference to some of the same things that Joel makes reference to. He says, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. There's going to be great cataclysm. Physically, I believe. I believe that these are physical references to to actual events that will take place in the physical sphere. I don't take this to be some sort of a metaphor for something else. I think... I think the, the, the broader point that he is making is it's going to be cataclysmic. I mean, you think a, a global pandemic is bad. Wait till the day of the Lord. It will be like nothing we have ever seen. So, Peter then asks a question. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? If, if this is coming, if the day of the Lord is coming, How should we conduct ourselves? And he suggests by his rhetorical question to be holy in our conduct and godly. That's the response. The response is not, when's it going to come? Let me get out my charts. Let me figure it out. Let me plan ahead. The response is not, panic. What am I going to do? The response is, live godly. Live for Christ. Conduct yourself as he has told you to. Because there's a reality. The day of the Lord is coming. And so, Joel's prophecy is no less relevant for us today. What's he, what's he saying? The day of the Lord is coming. And we ought to be reminded this morning. The day of the Lord is coming. So, Peter, how should we conduct ourselves? Christ-like? Godly? Being sanctified? Then he says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, he doesn't mean that we can hurry it up. What he's saying is we're longing for it. We're trying to make it come as fast as we can. In our heart of hearts, we are longing for that day. We are looking forward to that future hope. And so, so the response for us, the application for us is, is well, there's, I'm going to give you five. Three of them are in your notes. Two of them I'm adding, all right? So, so the first one is live, live a godly life. When you think about the day of the Lord, when you read the prophets, when you see the, the, Joel saying the day of the Lord is coming, well, our day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord is coming. So what do we do? We live godly. Number two, we look for that future hope. Longing 
looking, hastening the coming of that day. Nevertheless, we, according to his promises, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because the day of the Lord, when it comes, it will dawn with God's glory ruling and reigning. But here's the wonderful thing, that that day never ends. God will make a new heaven and a new earth, and he will rule forever. Because at the end of those thousand years, Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit. His enemies are finally and ultimately defeated, and God sits again on the throne of the universe. He sits on the throne of the universe now, but it will then be active. It will then be clear. It will then be that his, his enemies are annihilated, and God rules once again. So the application I've already given you two. Let me give you a couple more. Um, pursue holiness. Look for a future hope. But then thirdly, repentance. I mean, this theme of repentance comes through all of the prophets. When we see God's judgment coming, repent. Well, doesn't this remind us of the good news of Jesus Christ? That, that out in ourselves we have no hope. We are worthy of condemnation because we are sinners separated from God because we do the things that we ought not to do and we don't do the things that we ought to do. That's called sin. And so we must suffer punishment for those sins. Ah, but another has taken our punishment on, his behalf, on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth and lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. And then he died on a cross, not for his own sin, but to suffer the penalty that you and I deserve. He rose again the third day, and in doing so, he offers forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. We must turn from ourselves. We must turn from our rebellion. We must turn from our sin. We must turn from our own self-dependence. That's what repentance is. It's turning from my way to God's way. What is the call that Joel makes? He says, run to the temple. Run to God. Repent. Because the day of the Lord is coming. The call is still the same today. Run to Christ, who Hebrews says is far better than the temple, who is far better than the sacrificial system. Run to Christ, who is the ultimate sacrifice. And so this morning, if you have never recognized your own inadequacy and fallen completely on the mercy of God, the message of Joel is the message of the gospel. Run to Christ Repent of your sin, turn from your sin and self-dependence, and throw yourself on the mercy of God. Repentance is a theme that, that we don't get away from in Scripture. It's all throughout. If we don't, we sit under the judgment of God. That's the message of the prophets. You say, it seems so, so mean. It seems so dark. It seems so harsh. The reality is God is a God who will judge. Even though we want to think of him as some sort of a naive, grandfatherly type who will just sweep our sin under the rug, God is a just God. He will judge. And so judgment is, is pouring out, is, is, is almost there on those who rebel from God, those who refuse to repent. But restoration is promised for those who do repent. 
If you're here this morning and you are recognizing this message from Joel, there are two different applications. One is if you've not repented, if you've not turned to Christ, if you've not thrown yourself on His mercy to repent, otherwise judgment comes. But what a joy it is to know that the day of the Lord also holds out for us joyous blessings, restoration for those who repent. And so as the prophets promise Israel of old, you will be restored one day, so too we can know those same blessings in the gospel. We can know those same blessings through Christ who restores, who makes right with God, who puts people in right relationship through the blood of Jesus Christ. I would ask you this morning, what are you concerned about? What worries you? Economic collapse? Global pandemic? Nuclear holocaust? In Joel's day, the people were concerned about the immediate threat of the food supply because of the locust uh, plague. But Joel called them to direct their attention to something more significant. The day of the Lord is coming. Father, we thank, we thank you that we can look forward to a day of hope. We thank you that we can rejoice knowing that one day you will once again make all things right on this earth. We rejoice in those truths. We thank you for those truths. And we pray for our friends, for our neighbors, for those who do not know you as Savior, that we would be messengers of a hope that can be theirs in Christ. Or give us the grace to live each day in the light of your coming, in the light of the day of the Lord. I want to allow you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord, to confess sin, to apply this scripture to your heart, to your life, to seek His face in the quietness of these moments. So, Lord, use your prophet Joel to speak to our hearts this morning, to continue to speak to us throughout the week. Use us in your service. Lord, we look forward to, we long for the day when you will restore all things. We look forward to that day that we even sang about this morning that we can rejoice in, knowing that hope is ours in Christ. We offer these things in His precious name. Amen.